as I was reading today, that I used to annotate the things that we read by like breaking them up into sections that I thought were hung together and then I'd put them on an artificial page oh. break in. And I just forgot no. I used to do that. And I don't do that anymore. And that used to really help with like breaking it down into themes. But anyway, I've not done that. I think my annotations have gotten worse. I was like going back through my notes in my little notebook from when we first started. They have gotten worse. Now it yeah. is just like one word with like a little page number by it. One of my notes is just banger, page 13. I have no yeah. idea what that means now that I've sat down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, do you ever refer back to the page? when you? So, I mean, you pick out quotes, don't you? I, I, I very rarely. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I need to get out of the habit of... Um, that was good. You did very well there. That's, yeah. the, that's the first... This is the first time, <laughs> uh, listeners, that since we've started recording remotely from one another and using sort of like professional uh, podcast recording software... Um, Jack's managed to sneak, <laughs> sneak press, sneakily press the record button while I wasn't looking. I did Normally do it, it as you were looking at your notebook. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I've lost my train of thought, but uh, it's probably irrelevant. You son um, of a bitch. <laughs> uh, hello, Jack. Hello. It's nice to be talking to you once it's again. Nice. Uh, how lovely to be talking to you. This is probably just where we'll begin it anyway. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, lovely to be talking once again. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, I, I did just tell you this, but just so the listeners are aware, last recording, I think I was very stressed out about my potatoes not coming up because they'd been in the ground for about two and a half weeks, three weeks. No sign of them coming up. And you'll be happy to all know that my potatoes are now up. They're all accounted for and we're getting some good growth. So don't worry about that. And the broad Anybody's... beans are doing well as well. I imagine you walking up and down with your clipboard. Like, uh, <laughs> like they're like the soldiers on parade dressing them down or like <laughs> yeah exactly good growth taking, there yeah, taking attendance up. right well then yeah <laughs> anyway. good congratulations yeah. i'm delighted to hear that i was i was worried for your potatoes yeah, and for thank you, you. <laughs> yeah, i barely got any sleep um well dan spring is actually officially finally here it's very nice it's very very nice i gotta be honest i you know spring it's the best I, you know, I always, I talk about how much I like autumn and, you know, winter's winter. We don't need to talk about that and summer and all that stuff. But every year I'm constantly like, wow, everything's green. Jesus, Mm -hmm. everything's looking good. Just surprised about like all of the flowers that come out. I'm just like, this is the best time. It's just clearly the best. The days are longer. There's no, there's no argument. It It is the best season. Yeah. All you have to do is fight back the sort of like crippling realization that autumn is coming very soon <laughs> yeah and all of your plants need to be in the ground now yeah, what are you yeah, doing yeah, yeah, yeah. In the you, need, you need to make the most of all of this nice weather and you need to do things and like uh, um but apart from all yeah. of that apart from all this, this sort of self-induced stress and anxiety <laughs> if you just step back from it for a moment and take a breath you yes it is it is the most fulfilling uh potential rich uh time yes. of year and as you say yeah i've, I've been um I've been exploring my new surroundings and going for lots of walks and uh, and um, very excited. Yeah, get out, get out into those woodlands and see the wildflowers and I don't know, pick yes. the remains of the wild garlic if that's something that's happening in your climate. <laughs> yeah, it was very funny. I, I was on a walk this past weekend and I was like, I haven't seen any wild garlic yet. One of the people I was with was like, that's an entire like three square meter patch of wild garlic right next to you. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, what? <laughs> Not very aware of my surroundings, unfortunately. What are you uh-huh, going to do? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, um, well, yeah, I don't know. Anything else to update people I don't know. on? I mean, I mean, um, th- th- uh, this this 
uh, now Sunny Isle has a new king. Oh my God, I meant to mention that, Dan. Congratulations. Holy shit. Wow. What an occasion. How were people How were people in Cornwall? Were they excited? Were they stoked? As excited as uh, I was? We had some like council workers put a load of like Union Jacks up. Oh my God. But it was like, it was very lackluster. I mean, they put a lot of flags up, but um, I don't know. It, it felt somehow like tokenistic in a, in, in a kind yeah. of like desperate way. Yeah, um, and they were immediately battered by the wind and covered in pig and poo and, like, <laughs> and um, human feces. And... Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I went, I went to like a, well, I worked at, in fact, a uh, sort of like a, a, a anarchist punk night on the on the Friday oh, night before. Thank the God, I thought you were going to say you went to <laughs> worked at like a coronation event. Now it's like, uh, what? <laughs> Which uh, which I, I hadn't hadn't realized I was going to end up at, um, but it was it was just what I needed, suitably irreverent and disrespectful of the whole thing, and then I managed to um, I managed to ignore all of the uh, coronation proceedings on Saturday. Yeah, I mean I have I have thoughts about it. Most most <laughs> of them are the contradiction between my general presumption that. The vast majority of people don't really care and experience it as weird and <laughs> it is weird. Somewhat pathetic in the sense pathetic in the sense of the desperate effort that's being made to make it seem relevant, something that's highly irrelevant seem relevant. And my wish through this whole period has just been like, why don't they just get it over with? If they want to be taken seriously, if they want to maintain this institution, why don't they just tone it down, like stick the crown on his head, don't force it down people's throats? Um, and then in the aftermath, I was watching some of the sort of news broadcasts and Vox Pops and, um, uh, like video footage of the people queuing to see days before to stake out their place on the mall to see the, the king go by. And actually I'm like, no, there's a great population of this country who is totally nuts and uh, <laughs> totally, I wonder. totally enamored to the whole thing. And, uh, and the, the sort of media enterprise that has been put in place to try and make it relevant and, and uh, what have you, I think is perhaps having some kind of an effect. So yeah, the, the, the population of this country, I don't think as irreverent and disinterested as perhaps I would initially hope they would be, but I don't know what your experience has been. <laughs> I think all those all people from sort of an outsider position to some extent. I, well, it, yeah, I'll get to that. I think all those people, so many of them have got to be tourists, right? I don't actually know. I have no idea. I'm not trying to do a like Trump, like, you know, it was the biggest crowd I've ever seen. But like, <laughs> if I, okay, if I was in London, I, I, as we know, I try not to go to London. I'm almost never in London. But if I just happened to be in London, I probably would have gone down and been like, wow, this is batshit insane. I got to go see this. Look at the guy. Did you see the photo of him and um, uh, her, whatever her name is, on the balcony with their hats on, with the crowns. It was insane. It was no, so stupid. It's like an official picture of them standing in some stairway, <laughs> like a select number of family members who I didn't recognize, and then these two enormous, like I want to, they're even capes, are they? Like, what would you call them? Like, I don't know, carpets, carpets, <laughs> sort of trailing like... off the back of them. Um, I just, I yeah. just think all, all as someone who didn't grow up with any of this stuff and. You know, knowing that somewhere six thousand miles away, 
there's a little island where everybody has funny accents and they still have the queen or whatever. Like, it's very funny. It's still very funny to me. I know that, like, it's absurd and it's disgusting and they're all sickos and it's just, like, the most appalling. Like, it, they're an aristocracy. It's, like, disgusting. Yeah. I don't need to be explaining to the people who listen to the show. I, like, I can't. Yeah, I can't <laughs> take it seriously funny. anymore. <laughs> no, I, I, who's ever taken these people okay, seriously? Good, like, good. plenty of people, I'm sure. But it's just very silly. It's just, it's just like, so absurd. And I'll be honest, around here, um, in Kent, or in East Kent, I guess, didn't see it, it didn't really run into a lot of people who cared much or who watched it, really, at all. There was some bunting. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest, there was bunting. There is still bunting across the street. There's some bunting still up. Um, that was, that was about the extent of it. I don't know. I was a little disappointed. I wanted to see the, I wanted to see everybody get, you know, wow, a new king. Whoa. How silly. How funny. Yeah. I don't know. Very, very absurd. The whole thing, seeing it, seeing a monarch of this country that isn't Queen Elizabeth has just really made it be like, oh yeah, it was all really stupid this whole time, but I don't know. Every time I saw a photo of it, I was just like, they're just sticking their foot in it. They look like such ducks. It's so stupid. But, you know, mm-hmm. what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, yeah, I hope, I hope that everybody experiences it as silly. I mean, I'd be delighted if everybody from outside the UK just sees it as silly and ridiculous and ludicrous. And yes, please laugh at us. Um, <laughs> the only way we're going to learn is if you mock us relentlessly. Um, but I'm fearful of presuming too much that the general attitude of the public is just, isn't this silly? <laughs> Yeah. The, other, yeah, no, the right. other thing that it reminded me of, I was listening. I was listening to some news Fox pops, and they were asking people, well, for their reflections. And these were people actually attending the coronation. So take sort of like take this as representative of God knows what. Um, but sort of the way they were describing it was like, oh, isn't it nice? We've gone through the difficulty of COVID, and we're going through this sort of difficult economic times, and it's just nice to have something to enjoy and sort of like look up to and it kind of reminded me what I think I used to know at least one aspect of the royal family's job is to like take things that should otherwise be experienced as political and sort of like uh sort of like put this seemingly apolitical air over it so like what I mean is like COVID's a difficult sell although what we would say is like COVID is caused by capitalism kind of thing at least to some extent but more importantly like the current economic situation has villains and that you should be able to point at them and the monarchy is trotted out to sort of this cover for these uh these sort of like political villains that we have in our country um i mean they're villainous in their own way but like um yeah anyway it is it is so funny that they're like hey it's the coronation and then they're like oh by the way we're bumping up interest rates to four and a half percent it's just like oh cool everything's (laughs) doing well and the uh, the hats. <laughs> bunting. Is there a more evil decoration than the Union Jack bunting? I'm, I'm <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Mm. There was a phrase in the in 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 um the lexicon of people that I was surrounded by for a while that was bunting fascism. Which I think is <laughs> sort of what we do experience from time to time. It's just like Well, I'll be honest. I'll be honest. My I was walking through town with my partner. And she's of English stock, of Irish stock. And we walked past some bunting. It was like, and you know, one of the flags with his face on it, big Union Jack, someone's house was decorated with all this crap. And she was just like, fucking fascist. Look at these fucking people. (laughs) Fuck them. And I was just like, I was 
just like, I think it's kind of, it's so absurd. It's like, I couldn't even let myself get mad about it. It's like, mm. look at this. It's a Union Jack with Charles's face on it. That's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. It's like their house is just like, you can't even see the walls. It's covered in so much bunting. It was just absurd. It was just so absurd. You had to laugh. This year was just like fucking fascist. <laughs> I'm, I'm aware that I have a very visceral, visceral reaction to seeing the Union Jack. More yeah. so than I do any other flag. I could even like attach myself to other flags. In a, in, but that one in particular, and in some ways the St. George's Cross as well, I just sort of like have this really negative reaction. And maybe it's because they're the flags of the country that I'm from and like what have you. But um, I, will, I, will, I will allow other people an enjoyment of their nation's flags in a way that I sort of <laughs> just like have exactly that reaction to. We'll um, allow it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Whenever I see like the American flag in somebody's front lawn, I, I like feel sick to my stomach. But, you know, I don't that makes it hard to walk across, walk around in America. <laughs> but, you know, fortunately, we don't thing. see a lot of Union Jacks in this country. So yeah. much as much as there is a desire to hang them from every public building and that kind of thing, it's not quite happened yet. So, yeah, St. George's Cross is much more fascist to me, though. It's just much more like, why do you why do you got that flag? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like it's someone who has a Union Jack in their front lawn could be like fash or they could just be like i don't know some middle class old lady you know what i mean if you have a saint george's cross it's like hmm, well you got that you know what i'm saying it's like, i don't know yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. anyway that's our flag critique of the day okay good <laughs> um speaking of flags dan no not speaking of flags oh actually you know what? before we get into it um uh, wanted to give a quick shout out to some listeners dan um the college socialists of stony brook university some of them got in touch um we've been having some cool conversations it just basically got in touch to be like, hey, you know, he's just talking smack and talking shop and whatever. But anyway, shout out to Kayvon and Lid of um, College Socialists of Stony Brook University. If you're at Stony Brook, um, go say what up, because they seem to be very cool people. And um, yeah, I don't know. What else are you going to do? You're on Log Island or something. Is that where Stony Brook is? I don't know. A friend of mine went to Log Island and he came back with a Log Island accent and I've never forgiven him for that. So what are you going to do? Um, Dan, should we get into our actual reading now that we've gone through all of the uh, fascism and Stony Brook talk? Let's do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we both agree, feeling very refreshed after reading this. What do you think? Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a, definitely a um, re- return to familiar territory, but um, not just in the sense that it's a familiar author and a sort of like uh, familiar political milieu that we're going to sort of like step into a little bit but um but it's just fun to get back to this period of time and these sort of like political questions of um assessing the political atmosphere and the relative political trajectories and ideologies and strategies of sort of like early early 20th century marxism um yeah we're going to read some more paul matic Yes, Paul Maddock. It's been a while. I found, okay, so for the listener, you already know because you've either read the description or you've looked at the name of this podcast, but we read three essays by Paul Maddock from the Council Communist Reader, Paul Maddock Sr. Workers' Control, what was the second one? Revolutionary Marxism, and Karl Kautsky from Marx to Hitler, which I saw the name <laughs> of that one and I was like, Dan, we have to read this. Let's yeah. Read it. yeah, I think that might be the one I have the most to say about. Oh, yeah. oh definitely. <laughs> I think I think the first one, there's definitely some stuff to say. The second one was kind of just like stuff we've already talked about. I don't know how much there is to say about it. It was a good refresher, though. But Karl Kautsky from Marx to Hitler. Yeah, get your get your air horns ready because there are some zingers in there. Council Communists stand remain undefeated in their zingers. More zingers per like page in Council Communist writings than anybody else. 
Um, yeah, I found this like slipping into a warm bath, and it was very familiar. I think a while ago, we, I think we maybe oversaturated ourselves with some left com theory. I think my hair began to fall out for various reasons, and we needed to take a break. But um, going back to this, after the dialectical stuff, you know, us, our multi-episode foray trying to figure out the dialectic, um, I appreciated this. So where do, you, where do you think we start? Should we just start with the first essay? I think maybe we just go through them as chronological as we can. There is some overlap, and I'm sure we'll draw on other things that we've read, and I'm sure almost certainly we'll forget to touch on things. But hang on, let's, <laughs> no let's, just, let's, just, um, let's just have some fun with this. I definitely, um, yeah, I definitely almost came to this sort of back to council communism and left communism reading this and almost felt more sympathetic to it than I had in the past. Like I am open to all of the criticisms that it makes of um, it's sort of, well, these, these various essays were, it's worth saying were written at different times. The first one a bit later in the early sixties, I think. And then the earlier ones in the thirties. So a bit closer to the time period in which it's, um, which uh, Paul Matic is talking about. But I definitely, definitely seem, I feel more willing to just be like, yes, I agree with this, you know, maybe, I know. maybe I'm just, a, maybe I just like going to be a council communist. And I don't know what's, what's, what's brought about that in my head. But I think, I think part of it is the being reminded of the, the, the nature of some of the critiques that council communism makes, but also of the, the radicalism that's inherent in it. Um, the very avowedly revolutionary attitude that it takes. And what Paul Matic is doing in, in many respects here is taking a theoretical discussion and um, making it very definitely part of a revolutionary project and calling out anything that um, smacks of reformism or um, other synonyms for reformism. <laughs> <laughs> Etc. Well, that's the most refreshing thing, right? And that's why, like, reading this kind of stuff, you're just like amped. Like, um, on my lunch break today, I was making notes for this, and I was kind of a little bit overwhelmed. Got a lot of stuff going on, and I was just like, "Oh man, I gotta fucking make notes for this. This is gonna suck." But I went back through it, and I was just like, "Man, I was like amped. I was like, this stuff. It just, it just rocks." And like, and obviously, we'll get into some criticisms we might have of it. But it's just so refreshing to have someone just be like, no, revolution, no reform. Fuck you. If you're talking about any kind of reform or any of its synonyms, get out of here. You're not a goddamn commie. You're not a Marxist, I guess is what he would say. Because we're in Marxism and we'll get into this is very much like it's also practice, right? Like it's the revolutionary act. Um, but <clears throat> so we'll start with workers' control. Straight away, he comes out and is just like the goal of socialism is abolishing the wage system. And it's, he's like, keep your eye on that because that is the goal 100%. And if you're looking at anything else, you're a reformist. And it's just like, man, yeah, you're right. Because so many times we see various, you know, communist sects, whether they're like Leninist or Trotskyist or something like that, or, you know, maybe like memes of those, uh, bastardizations, maybe, maybe not, of those sects, like, you kind of get away from the goal a little bit. The goal becomes establishing a new state form, or the goal becomes taking power, or the goal becomes something like this. And it's like, no, the goal always needs to be, as we saw in the fundamental principles, abolishing the wage system, because unless you do that, unless you get rid of the value form, dude, you're going to slip back into uh, to capitalism. And he talks about Yugoslavia in here at one point, which we'll get into, but he's like, you know, they don't they don't abolish these things. If you, you still have markets, you still have all of this shit. You, you got all the same relations. Keep your eye on the relations, because that's what uh, we need to be focusing on. 
And I don't know, just hearing that is just like, let's go, let's go, man. And I mean, the reason that people aren't all left comms like this guy, right, is because it's like, well, how do you get to that point? How do you do that? And it becomes a question of like, well, you know, how are we going to get to that point? Maybe we need to take state power first or whatever. But like just seeing him come out and be like, no, getting rid of wages, that's socialism, full stop. I was just like, yes, you go, king. Yes, yeah, definitely. And I'm really pleased that you bring up the um, Fundamental Principles book because you could, as I, I've, it's a little while since I actually looked at that book or engaged heavily with the topics in it. But as I think back on it, it's this sort of seemingly very practical guide, right? Um, and it's nice to be reminded that, as we know already, it sort of sits in the tradition of council communism. There were council communists that... Um, that wrote it, Paul Matic, I think, wrote the foreword for the edition that we read or something. So he was quite closely connected to, to the people writing that book. Um, and it's nice to be reminded that that political program, if we'll call it that, um, is inspired by um, a very radical vision of what it means to transition to socialism. Um, and putting workers' control at the heart of that I can only reiterate what you said, right? It's like really incredibly vital to put that front and center because you sort of slip into sort of like different types of moralism or different types of reformism or it becomes about saving the NHS or whatever. Um, what I really found really thrilling about this was his criticism of syndicalism and sort of moving into a criticism of um, the cooperative movement. He gives a sort of like very brief, but sort of like um, considerate history of those two movements. Um, and I, it feels uh, an important thing to read here, but also talk about in our contemporary context, right? Because what he's very importantly saying is that workers' control doesn't mean cooperatives, and it doesn't mean syndicalism. It means uh, something else to that. <laughs> That's another third thing. Yeah. <laughs> could you could you go through what he was talking about about the relationship between socialism and workers' control, and why you can't have one without the other? basically that I, I i think i understood what he was saying but i mean i think it's just that um what i will say is that the criticism he's making of uh syndicalism and the cooperative well there's several several interesting um criticisms that come off of and his analysis of um thinking around cooperatives but the most important thing is one that one that is very evident to anybody who's read the fundamental principles book is that your aim is not to give control over all of the capitalist firms to those people who work in those firms so that they continue can continue to operate them as independent capitalist firms because they will inevitably end up in competition with one another. They'll have to um, self-exploit. They'll have to continue efforts towards the production of value. What you don't achieve in that model, which is intended to be achieved by the fundamental principles model, is to have this sort of like um, connection between firms, which is represented by the accounting function of the labor time credit system, this sort of like interconnectedness between firms, which allows for the maintaining of some amount of autonomous workers control in each individual firm, but also a sort of like overarching socialization of production um whereby in the end the firms are not owned by the workers they're sort of like the workers are custodians of these firms on behalf of the entire working class which under socialism has become 
the entire population of any socialist nation or economy or world kind of thing yeah for sure um, and, and it's... you haven't eliminated the market if you haven't done away with that um disconnectedness between different groups of workers i suppose and it's um it's a similar thing right of criticisms of co-ops under capitalism it's the exact same thing yeah because he says you know to speak of workers control he's basically like you can't just talk about workers control right because what does that actually mean you can have workers control quote unquote within capitalism and it's still capitalism so he says to speak of workers control within the framework of capitalist production can only mean control over their own organizations for capitalism implies that the workers are deprived from all effective social control and so the way that the councilists and fundamental principles kind of come about this question is yeah, it isn't just like a syndicalist thing where we all just run our own organizations, dude, our own firms. It's no, you actually have to under, you have to have control over what they call um, the, uh, what is it? The control of the um, disposal. Yeah. Control of disposal. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, thank you. And that's what Maddox, I suppose here would maybe call just social control. Control over the right of disposal is just social control in its entirety because then you just cut out the middleman and, you know, you're no longer self-exploiting, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and he does, he does um, put all this in a, a, a sort of important historical context because sort of like the syndicalist movement almost, um, in some respects, predates or comes alongside Marxism. Obviously, Proudhon was like a, a mutualist anarchist who, um, in my understanding, was an early thinker around. Um, what you might describe, describe as Marxist um, market socialism, and that was the basis of Marxist some of Marxist critique of Proudhon, right? Um, uh, Matic um, describes syndicalism and the cooperative movement as being um, having an important historical context, in the sense that what they achieve, in some respects, is actually the further development of capitalism. There is a portion of um, the history of the transition from like feudalism into capitalism where um, certain capitalist notions and ideas have to be inculcated in the burgeoning working class. And one of the things that's achieved is um, the early cooperatives, what do they do? They sort of like take things that are sort of like um, maybe petty bourgeois handicraft kind of movements and bring those workers together so that they can work in some kind of co cooperative setting and in some ways, that gives them a degree of autonomy and it's a degree of protection from the market. Although, as we were just saying, it also requires them to further engage with the market in that process of um, exploitation of their own labor um, because they're still trying to produce surplus value, right? Um, but what it does is socializes them to the kind of like collective workplace setting, which then um, when those firms inevitably go bust, right, they're sort of like socialized toward... Um, working for a capitalist in a sort of like industrial setting and similarly for cooperatives because there's not just like the cooperatives movement based around employment but also there's like the idea of consumer cooperatives right so like um early workers came together to like um set up a cooperative grocery say so that they could um be a collective buyer of things so they could get a lower cost um but in some ways, what that helps do is ease this transition from being an independent producer to being a consumer. And then obviously these things will fall away when they've done their work of socializing the nascent proletariat to capitalism. Um, but they do fulfill a important historic role, um, according to Matic. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, it's, that that makes me think because it's just interesting. Like, how how should we actually be relating to co-ops, right? Because obviously, like working at a co-op would presumably be better than working for a capitalist for certain reasons. And I mean, I know a lot of people like to look to co-ops to kind of be that, you know, well, you know, in the transition from feudalism to capitalism, you saw these nascent like organizations and, you know, the new society growing out of the womb of the old or whatever. And people like to look to co-ops to maybe be that form. And maybe one day they will be right. Because maybe what it's actually going to come down to is just like an inability of the ruling class to be able to provide the function that it provides to society, which is like, I guess, the means of production or something like that. I'm not entirely certain what it is that you actually do around here. But like, I don't know, maybe if in that situation, you're imagining that when the capitalists are unable to perform that function, the co-ops are then able to just kind of take over naturally. Maybe that's kind of the thinking. But at the end of the day, like, you do have to self-exploit if you're part of a co-op. And all of what you're saying leads Maddox to say, Unless to basically just be, you know, spontaneous movements have to be the thing. Otherwise, it's all going to fail. And in this sentence, I think we see like the roots of communization, right? He says, unless spontaneous movements issuing into organizational forms of proletarian self-determination usurp control over society and therewith over their own lives, they're bound to disappear again into the anonymity of of mere potentiality. Um, I mean, they certainly have up until this point, right? And so I guess it's just a question of like, is that necessarily the function of something like a co-op or something like syndicalism? Could you get to the point where you have co-ops and then you're able to kind of snap your fingers and be like, we've grown, it's a quantitative question. We've grown up to a certain point and then boom, now we're switching to labor time calculation and now it's a qualitative shift in social relations. That would be cool. And I suppose maybe that's something that we should be working towards. But at the end of the day, like the criticism of co-ops remains there and it remains true. So, yeah. you know. I mean, we've, I mean, there's a there's a point in this when he criti- critiques the idea of um, the sort of a new social system growing up in the body of the old or whatever. I don't know what whose phrase I'm bastardizing there. I don't know which one he which one he uses. Um, and yes, I guess it's at this point we can remind ourselves that Paul Matic is sort of through and through a left communist in that sort of like uh, what would become, I suppose, the communization tradition it's it's all minded toward um insurrection it's minded toward workers spontaneous action in the moment of a revolution which is necessitated by uh, certain material circumstances and there isn't a lot of room for that gradual gestation of something what you described there would be i think criticized by him as being um uh, a form of sort of evolutionary thinking, uh, a, a sort of degree of reformist thinking when we get onto his criticism of Kautsky and uh, Kautsky's politics and his attitude toward uh, capitalism and social democracy. Um, we can get into that more fully, his criticism of that kind of politics. Um, but yeah, you and I have definitely played with that idea in the past. And I think there's there is still value in that and we've still got work to do trying to work out where we stand on that and then but in the in the um in the long stayed tradition of this podcast whatever i've read is influenced is the thing that's influencing my, whatever i've read most recently is the thing that's influencing me most fully and so <laughs> at, the, at the moment full of sort of revolutionary insurrectionary uh figure i'm I'm, I'm minded to say no. <laughs> no but I mean, it's, it's weird. Yeah, half half of the listeners are like, "Go back to McNair. Go back to McNair." Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but it's weird though, because it isn't insurrectionary. Like that's the kind of weird thing that I was thinking about is because it's like communization clearly comes out of this kind of tradition, but then the like invisible committee stuff where it's like, do the insurrection, man, you just have to do it. It's like, well, that's not what he's saying at all. And that's, that doesn't seem to me it's to not, even be communization. Yeah. Maybe it's not insurrectionary. It's spontaneous, spontaneist, right? It's spontaneous. Yeah. It's which does feel qualitatively different because he is, well, in the second essay, he's kind of laying out his theoretical basis like the permanent crisis stuff for like why class struggle acts in the way that it does and why you kind of can't just impose these things on workers. But at the end of the day, like, I, I don't know. I mean, this stuff all rocks and he very well might be right, but it's also like, Oh man, cool. If we could do something, you know what I mean? But you know, that's what, yeah, I don't know. Then, then he, he basically gets in We'll again, we'll talk about this when we talk about Kautsky, but he's like in these downtimes of non-revolutionary, um, uh, uh, times, Marxism is basically functioning as ideology and nothing else. It isn't until you kind of have this like upswing in revolutionary momentum that isn't necessarily, it's not that it's not predictable, but it's not regular, right? He's like, there are defeats and there are downtimes and we'll get into that. But like, you know, it isn't until those times that you can actually put your boots on and actually help the working class movement. Because if you're trying to, you know, it, otherwise it just becomes like a revolution from above, revolution from below kind of thing, right? So what are you gonna do? Yeah, 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 yeah. Not much, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, should we talk a little bit about where he is taking inspiration from, which is the spontaneous appearance of um councils, in this case, like the Soviet system in 1905 and again in 1917, and um, how he views that as this sort of like spontaneous action of the working class that is breaking away from its pre-existing organizations because the history, history, the history that he gives, um, I'm going to stop pretending that I know how to use the word historiography. God knows what I, I don't <laughs> I'm know. I'm enjoying that. <laughs> <laughs> um, the history he gives is a very um, uh, almost defeatist one to some extent where Basically, from 1900 onwards, and even before that, maybe for the last decade of the 19th century, um, all of the key representatives of the workers' movement, the parties and the trade unions, are basically all considered to have divested themselves of any sort of revolutionary um, uh, credentials, I suppose, and have all adopted this reformist thing. And he really, we're gonna, we'll, we can talk about it more later, perhaps. But he, he quite interest, he, he interestingly um, links that to the business cycle of capitalism, right? Like uh, capitalism is doing well. There is a certain amount that the workers can get out of that, like, and through a kind of organization, they're able to actually win themselves some gains. And then to that extent, they acquiesce themselves to the continued existence of capitalism, partly because their representative bodies have done that as well. But coming back to what we're saying about it being the sort of like, um, uh, his sort of slightly depressing outlook is that all of the representatives of the workers' movement have become reformist. And it takes a sort of like revolutionary moment for the working class in Russia through a certain absence of representation to create this body that they need. And there, there is an extent to which when I've engaged this kind of thinking in the past, when I've read Council Communism and other left communists, I've sort of 
felt a little bit like they treat workers' councils like some kind of like magical, mystical thing. And sort of the, the important thing that I'd been missing when I was slipping into that kind of thinking is what he kind of makes quite obvious is that like, no, they come about because there is a lack of representation for what they need to achieve. Um, in in Russia, it's because of the relative weakness of the the workers, the, like the social democrats and the trade unions. Um, in in Germany, it's more because the social democrats and the trade unions have so thoroughly committed themselves to the sort of like social chauvinism of fighting or supporting Germany's war effort that if the workers want to end the war, they're going to have to create bodies that are separate from that kind of thing. Um, but it's through this concrete historical experience that he's pointing to the the working class's ability to organize in moments of um, revolutionary necessity, I suppose. Yeah, the necessity of that organization, right? Yes. I mean, yeah, he, yeah he, he just comes out and he's like, I'll, I'll solve it all for you, everybody. The revolutionary or the the form of the revolution, the social form is the council. Boom, done, you know? Yeah. And I don't know. It, 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 yeah, I mean, that's cool. He makes the point that like the Soviets obviously were the thing that defeated the czar. They were the thing that overthrew the government. It wasn't the Bolsheviks. I mean, obviously the Bolsheviks went in there and then they did their coup, right? But like the form of the revolution was not the Bolshevik party. The form of the revolution was the workers' councils, the Soviets, right? Yeah. Um, but and yeah, I, I guess I just, yeah, I guess I just don't know how, well, yeah, I don't know. Go ahead. I mean, no, I, I think I agree with what you're, I don't know. I think I, I think you're probably searching after a criticism that maybe I agree with. Um, like I'm, I was just going to say like, well, you know, that's worrying because where are they now? <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah. And I guess it'd be quite difficult to, it would be easy to read him as saying, because it, because it's the council communist reader, you know, like saying we need councils kind of thing and it's mm. maybe it's some ways he's taking you could read it as taking this prescription from history and then so i in some respects reading this could perhaps appear ahistorical in some respects um, i think he's, i guess I think that wouldn't be his intention right which would, would be simply to say here is a historical example of working class spontaneity creating organizations in a moment of necessity maybe that needs to happen again or that will happen again in a revolutionary moment um, i think a lot of this though about. Yeah, I think a lot of this comes down to his analysis of like value theory and val in the value form and different stuff like this. And that's kind of, it's also a historical analysis why he points to the council and is like, this is the thing. But I think it's also that he's like, this is just the only form that things can take for the value form to be overthrown and for workers to do it themselves. Because it's almost like a tautology. It's like, because if it's anything else, the workers aren't doing it for themselves because the workers aren't doing it. And the council is them doing it, right? But it's like, one can imagine... I mean, I think that maybe there's just a bit of a leap in logic between like the council is the form of the revolution and therefore the councils will do socialism, you know, like I don't see necessarily how that follows, but I do totally follow and I maybe even agree with him in saying that the council is the form of the revolution. But yeah, the there, is, is, there, is, there a, is there a piece of like um, communization, magical thinking where that becomes <laughs> the form of like socialism? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think there's, I think there's definitely a danger of like mistaking a council for a cooperative in some respects. Um, and how does one not slip into the other? Um, these are still people acting in certain political situations that are still tied to bourgeois and capitalist politics. And obviously, after the end of the First World War in Germany, the sort of like 
um, council form was sort of like um, uh, was sort of transmuted into something that was able to exist alongside capitalism in, in a kind of like in a, in a form of organization which was councils operating more like workers representation under capitalism and obviously we know in russia it became this sort of like this thing that existed in name only and really the party took over um and in in, in matix analysis in both cases what that served to do is further the advance of capitalism or at least a form of uh, economy in um in the soviet union which maintained value production kind of thing so so the, the what i'm saying is councils appearing in a revolutionary moment doesn't necessarily lead directly to the councils doing socialism i suppose yeah especially when there's like a bureaucratic body lauding over them that's like threatened by the councils like there were in germany or yeah. like the bolsheviks in russia who were like hey wow we have a majority an organic majority in the soviets we need to keep that at all costs and like actively start kicking people out who aren't Bolsheviks. And you know, whether yeah. or not that was justified is a completely different question, but like, yeah, I don't know. It is what happened. Yeah. It is what happened. Yeah. Um, all right. We're at, we're at 40 minutes. Should we move on to the second essay? The only thing that I really have to say about this one, because a lot of this is just his, him discussing the permanent crisis and basically just doing Grossman. We did a whole yeah. episode on this stuff. Go back and we've listen to Paul it. Martin. We've, we've read Paul Martin <laughs> yeah. Grossman before. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just like we've read somebody talking about Wallerstein before. I'll have yeah. you know. <laughs> um, this is just rising organic composition of capital stuff. Basically, this what impressed me about this essay, though, the revolutionary Marxism one, is that like, yeah, he's backing this stuff up. A lot of the times I feel like you kind of get some some more like lefty comms people, <laughs> lefty comms, left com people being like, maybe not necessarily backing up with what they're what they're talking about with like a lot of hard i don't want to say hard science because that's so lame but like he's really backing this up with an analysis of value and analysis of like the actual dynamics of capitalist political economy um and it really does show and the only other thing that i think maybe we want to touch on is his analysis of fascism because i really found this to be just like several pages of like boom here's what fascism is but a bing but a boom and in like a very palmatic way like done and dusted let's move on um and of course, like it ties into his idea of the permanent crisis and stuff. Before we talk about that, is there anything else to go over for this one? I mean, I, th I feel like um, I didn't get a huge amount out of this essay, mostly because, as you were saying, it's like a, a whirlwind run through all of the sort of like greatest hits of um, a, a sort of certain presentation of Marxist theory. And I sort of like almost rolled my eyes because I felt like I was being steamrolled by it. Um, and it would have taken much sort of greater picking through. Um, I can't really remember what he says about fascism in this essay. The one, the one thing that really stuck with me um, is in like the very first section, I think. And he um, he 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 reminds me of something that I think I learned through reading the Fundamental Principles book, which is that this i this this sense this description of what capitalism has done as being um, a process of socializing production right capitalism brings workers together it brings human beings together in the form of the proletariat into um larger and larger interconnected um cooperative form i.e a worker now is connected to so many different workers in the process of production what it what they produce is connected to so many other people in such a way that we are even under capitalism collectively creating um 
our world if we maybe we do that in every mode of production you know but like you know what i mean on the, the greatest possible scale we are now collectively producing our world and all we need to do is socialize the control of that production process um and sort of that is what socialism is and that that's become for me anyway like a really inspiring definition of socialism and a way to understand it so it was nice to have that reiterated um obviously he sort of like talks through um the crisis process i suppose in the way this essay relates to the other ones that we've read here is that um what he gives us here is a very concise form of the theory which is underlying both of these other two essays in some respects which is um as you as we were saying before the sort of like ups and down fortunes of Marxism are in a lot of ways tied to the business cycle. They're tied to um, the process of the declining rate of profit and how that manifests and how the counter tendencies play against that. Um, and they tie into this idea that uh, the working class in some ways is only revolutionary in certain moments of economic downturns with a certain degree of um what we might call a miseration, I suppose. Um, so I think that's sort of like how this essay ties into the others. Um, it is It is definitely, as you say, greatest hits. It's just like, boom, 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 boom. It's like somebody I feel like told him to write, like, give us a, I don't know, like, give us a 10 page summary of everything you think. And he was just like, ah, and it was in 1939. <laughs> so he typed fascism into it. Um, okay. But yeah, 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 yeah. All, all excellent what, what stuff. What does he say about fascism in that essay? That, or was he, it was it more was it more in the Kautsky essay that you're thinking of? It's it's definitely in both. What he says in here, I'm just going to quote this bit because it is it it is very good. He said, <laughs> "Yeah, the ending is very good." He says, "The fact that the ideological basis of fascism is formed by the impoverished middle class does not alter the fact that the fascist movement operates only in the interest of the now monopolized capital, capitalist concentration, which goes even on which goes on even in the permanent crisis." Uh, necessarily impoverishes also the middle strata of capitalists. The energies thus aroused within the middle class are engaged by monopoly capital for its own purposes. Parts of the petty bourgeoisie are granted concessions at the expense of the workers, though these concessions are only of temporary character. So we've come across this idea before, right? Like fascism is this attempt to, to smash the contradictions of capitalism together to get them to keep working for just another couple of days, right? Um, and I really thought his analysis here of monopoly capitalism was very interesting. I really like how, you know, because you, you you can kind of confuse when you're talking about fascism, the ideological basis with the actual material basis of what's going on and kind of like the purpose of fascism. And he really kind of just cleaves that really well here. He's like, even though, you know, the ideological basis for all of this stuff is like angry people in the middle class shouting about like the fifth column or whatever and talking about, you know, oh man, when I was in the trenches, oh, if only they gave me a chance, oh, if only I didn't get betrayed by like X, Y, and Z people. In reality, what fascism is, is it's uh, monopoly capital kind of on its last legs and like really doing its best to, um, to keep its head above water. And it is really interesting the way that they're able to kind of just grant some concessions to the middle class to get them to be mobilized in the fry corps or whatever, right? But like at the end of the day, don't get it twisted. This is all to benefit, um, you know, capitalists of an ever fewer number right up at the top. Um, and uh, keep note of that, the petty bourgeoisie phrase in there, because we'll talk about who he might be referring to when we talk about Karl Kautsky. But um, that, that's all. It's just it's then, good. And he ties it into the permanent crisis stuff, which is excellent. But the Nazis called themselves socialists, Jack. So oh, I know. Yeah, Christ. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> Argument destroyed. Damn. <laughs> 
no, yeah, you're quite right. I think what he's saying is that like the Nazis make certain necessary economic and political moves to save capitalism. They make those things palatable to the working to the middle class rather um, in certain ways where um, they make their remiseration okay because they create a whole series of sort of uh, artificial bad guys, scapegoats as we know kind of thing so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but for, a, it, for monopoly capital as well it's important to yes to know. okay yeah, yeah yeah not for not on the on behalf of the petty bourgeois and the small businesses yeah yeah yeah, yeah. okay should we get to it should we get to should we get to the good stuff yeah. Karl Kautsky from Marx to Hitler um I love this I, I don't know maybe it's just because more people are talking about Karl Kautsky now and it's just funny for him to be like this guy was basically a fucking Nazi. So the whole po the whole point of this, the reason it's called from Marx to Hitler, Karl Kautsky from Marx to Hitler, is because he's being like, this is how you get from Karl Marx to Hitler by like way of Karl Kautsky, which is kind of fucking brutal. And he basically talks about the role that um, social democracy played in kind of cowing itself to the rising tides of fascism. So there's a, a cop about to go by, Dan, so I'm going to meet myself. What would you make of it? Um... Yeah, I mean it's it's a ferocious attack on on, it is Karl, ferocious. on Karl in some respects, um, <laughs> and I feel like um, it. What he's really focusing on is a continuity in Kautsky, because sometimes what you can read is you can imagine like an early and a late Kautsky. You know, you can read the whatever the effort the effort program which he wrote, or you can read um, the social whatever that book's called, the Social Revolution, the Social whatever um and see a revolutionary thinker it's the revolutionary thinker that lenin saw um which made lenin um consider himself like an an, an Erfurtian orthodox kautskyist almost um until he finally had to break with kautsky um in and around the first world war um but what Matic is saying is, no, no, there isn't this sort of break. There isn't an early, cool, left-wing, revolutionary Kautsky and a sort of like reformist Kautsky. It's like Kautsky is a reformist through and through. He is a revolutionary in the form of being a theoretician. Um, but he criticizes him for not really actually having a revolutionary politics. And he sort of t once again ties that back to, well, what he says is Kautsky is only able to become the kind of like standard bearer of um, Marxism after the death of Marx and Engels. He's only allowed and able to do that because he is writing revolutionary theory in a time of relative economic stability where the social democratic party in germany is and the, and the trade union movement i suppose as well is reaching a degree of ascendancy which comes about with the corresponding upswing in the business cycle that happens at the end of the 19th century and the first decade and a half i suppose of the 20th century um and it allows him to paint sort of cast himself or be cast in this revolutionary veneer when really all he is ever doing is acquiescing to some degree or other to um, the politics that's actually really represented by Bernstein, the kind of like reformist um, notions around the evolution from capitalism to socialism through a, an increase in 
the voting membership of the Social Democratic Party to the point where they can sort of take over the state and then form some kind of monopoly state, which then allows for the transition to um, socialism. And Matic is here painting Katsuki as also kind of an arch reformer in a in the guise of a revolutionary theoretician, I guess. Everybody except for Paul Matic seems to think that there's just a communism button. The people in the co-ops <laughs> think we just build co-ops and then we flip it. You know, people, the social Democrats think we just, it's a quantitative question. And he makes that point. He's like, for a lot of these people, it's entirely a quantitative question, not a qualitative question at all. It's not, how can we actually build revolutionary energy? How can we harness it? It's just more people in party, more people in co-op, more people in syndicates will reach a point where you get that qualitative change. And, yeah. and he's just kind of like, no, and, no. and in this instance, it seems to come in the form of commodity production. You know, it's like more and more commodity production to the point where we can overcome impoverishment and um reach a state of material abundance such that we can have socialism which doesn't then isn't then at all considering the sort of like economic fundamentals of how capitalism creates a degree of wealth in some respects but also has these tendencies toward crisis which um immiserate and impoverish at the same time um yeah in hindsight that's an absolutely insane thing to think yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and and Matic invokes Marx quite clearly here when he points out that Marx thought that value production as it exists under capitalism is a historically bounded thing. It's, partic- it's particular to capitalism um, and we have to overcome value production if we're going to overcome capitalism. Um, and what he's accusing uh, Kautsky and his sort of fellow travellers in the centre and the right of the German Social Democratic Party of doing is... Um, sort of adopting a, an evolutionary attitude toward how capitalism becomes communism in the form of uh, greater material production. It's it's almost egotistical. It's like you see a lot of this stuff in like Trotsky sex now where it's like if only more people would just listen to me because I'm the standard bearer, torch bearer of Karl Marx. It went from Marx to Engels to Kautsky to Lenin, in my case, to Mao. To me, you know, it's just like, yeah, okay. And if only more people listen to you, it would all work. All, all of, it seems like everything that he's saying about Kautsky, and I will say it first, my man seems like he knows his Kautsky. It doesn't seem like he's just, he read the Erford program and was just like, what a fucking idiot. Like he seems like he's very, very familiar with a lot of stuff that he's read. He cites stuff throughout his life to make, you know, Maddox does to make his point. Um, so he's not just some crank, right? Like again, Maddox is doing his research here. But all of this, his, his criticism seems to be based off entirely of the quote in Capital, where Marx says a rise in the price of labor as a consequence of accumulation of capital only means, in fact, that the length and weight of the golden chains of the wage worker has already forged for himself allow for a relaxation of the tension of it. So then Maddock goes on to say the possibility under conditions of a progressive capital formation of improving labor conditions and of raising the price of labor transform the worker struggle into a force for capitalist expansion. Like capitalist competition, the worker struggle served as an incentive for further capital accumulation. It accentuated capitalist progress, and all of the gains of the workers were compensated for by an increasing exploitation, which in turn permitted a still more rapid capital expansion. And so like, if you're thinking about things in this quantitative sense where you're like, we're working within the state bounds, and we're going to play by the rules, but we're just going to push to try and get more to improve the lot of the workers. Oh, what about the workers in the Congo? Don't think about the workers in the Congo. We're just thinking about workers in, you know, in Germany and in Belgium. We're not thinking about anybody else or where this stuff comes from. Like, I, yeah, I don't know. It, it leads you to some kind of confusing places because like capitalists do to a certain extent 
I mean, not even to a certain extent, capitalists have an interest in the reproduction of wage labor, <laughs> right? And of the workforce. So if at a certain point, like, uh, like it is right now, um, wages lag behind the cost of social reproduction, they're going to want to increase, you know, they won't, you're going to have to do it through class struggle. You're going to have to force them to do it, but they will eventually be forced to raise wages because they need more workers. They have to keep coming back. Right. And if all the workers are dead, you don't have value at all. So it all does kind of come back to this one bit of Marx and this kind of question of quantitative versus qualitative change. And as of you're saying, like evolutionary change, um, and again, yeah, I, I find myself being fairly convinced. I don't know. Maybe it is just hindsight. Maybe it is just like, oh, well, yeah, you know, for Marx to Hitler or whatever. But yeah, I don't know. It's pretty good. I mean, you only have to read fossil capital to see the mechanisms that... Um, uh, it, can you hear me? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I, I, anyway, <laughs> I suddenly couldn't hear myself in my own earpiece and so I got confused. Oh, God. Um, I mean, it's quite pleasant, really, but... <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, yeah, you only have to read Fossil Capital to see the mechanisms that he's describing here, whereby resistance on the part of the working class encourages the capitalists to invest in machinery and the means of production to further to find new ways of increasing the surplus value that can be extracted from any unit of time, any unit of labor in the form of time um, that they can. And maybe there will come about the circumstance where the working class will be able to win for themselves uh, a greater quantitative portion of the the surplus. But for any quantitative increase that goes to the working class, there's an exponentially, not exponentially, but like significantly quantitatively greater portion of the new surplus that goes to the bourgeoisie. So there is a direct mechanism between workers' resistance to capitalism and actually the growth and expansion of capitalism and capitalist accumulation, at least in times of economic boom. Um, and what Matic is pointing out is what happens when you reach a moment of, moment of uh, economic crisis. And this ties, ties us into uh, Matic's connection between um, Kautsky and Hitler, right? He's saying that because Matic is, up, Matic is saying that Kautsky has almost fallen into some kind of political trap where he assumes that the the degree of like respectability that the working class movement has gained internal to capitalism through its general acquiescence to the ongoing existence of capitalism, the degree of respectability it's gained, well, that wouldn't ever, the, the bourgeoisie wouldn't ever abandon that. They would never pull back on democratic rights they wouldn't ever resort to authoritarianism in an effort to save capitalism and what he's saying is that Paul Matic has this naivety that says that normal capitalism is democratic liberal capitalism um, and fails to recognize that capitalism can exist in other forms and Kautsky almost expects Nazism to just be an aberration and not uh, the possibility for some other form of capitalism in crisis times when um the working class can't find a place for themselves within sort of at the table of uh political power i guess yeah and that um and the difference between the absolute rise in workers wages versus the relative like 
Well, fuck it. I'm getting those two confused. Yeah. But it's exactly what you're saying. Like the difference between like workers, hey, our wages are going up. Wow, this is really cool. Meanwhile, like, you know, relative to the capitalist, like they're getting like pennies versus the actual new wealth that's coming in. Yeah. Kind of like, yeah, it plays into entirely into this idea of like of social democracy and kind of like the issues with just playing the game, quote unquote, by the rules, right? Because, you know, there's a reason that uh the um the Spartacus groups were the ones that got, you know, murdered in the streets in Germany, right? And not like your your uh your kind of more like centrists and revisionists and stuff like that. And there's a reason it didn't happen any time before that, right? It's because they kind of the social democrats kind of played by the rules and yeah, they were like a pain in the ass to the Kaiser and there were times where it was illegal and legal to be part of like these different social democratic groups, but like at the end of the day they were kind of playing the game by the same rules as the capitalists. They just wanted a bigger share of capitalism and not so much like a qualitative change in the relations, right? And this kind of gets into something I've been thinking about a lot recently about like maybe it's Maybe it's kind of a question of game theory where it's like if you're actually trying to game theory out different revolutionary activities, like you need to be willing to actually break the rules of the game to actually change the rules of the game. Like you can't you can't just continuously like be like, well, we'll play by the rules and then eventually somehow the game will change without us ever breaking the rules. Like you do need to break the rules and you do need to basically be organizing proles for like, you know revolution and rebellion and not just for like taking to the streets and demanding better wages or whatever. But yeah, I don't know. Mm. That that but the, yeah. But the takeaway of this line of analysis is sort of that the proletariat might not be open to that kind of political propagandizing at, at all po- points in time. Well, exactly. Um, and in fact, like he he basically makes the point right that like they didn't feel betrayed by the social democrats. The working class didn't necessarily for this entire period of time feel betrayed. In fact, they were kind of stoked. They were kind of like fine with it because they were getting more wages. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 He almost, there's a, there was an interesting point where, cause you know, all the way back when we read, um, Ralph Miliband's book. Oh my God. And something that we sort of took away from that. And was this analysis of capitalism that said that class struggle is happening all the time in some small diminished form, you know, in, in the, in the heart of every relationship with an employer, there is a sort of like an element of class, class struggle that exists where, Paul Matic in this quite emphatically says that um, there is no ever-present class struggle. Like he's almost saying that there is a, it, it almost stops. It definitely ebbs really significantly, but it almost stops and then comes about again um, in moments of crisis. Um, he seems to be saying it just straight up does stop and it gets defeated yeah. and then full stop. You have no revolution for X amount of time. It could be days, it could be years, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's really interesting the way he he criticizes Karl Kautsky's approach to operating as a Marxist in a period of revolutionary downturn. He can he criticizes that in comparison to Marx, where Marx kind of like recognizes that at points of his life he enters into non-revolutionary times as politics are formed in a revolutionary moment in Europe. Um but he goes through several of sort of like non-revolutionary periods and he he doesn't um contrary to sort of like popular perception of marx right he doesn't actually retreat to the british library or he doesn't like purely become a revolutionary theoretician in the way that matic is accusing kautsky of doing but he's suggesting that marx's strategy to these periods of time is always to 
involve yourself in the political activities that are happening at any given time. And as as we know, obviously, like he was involved in the the first international and blah 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 blah, blah whatever. Um, but Matic is very clearly creating a distinction between Marx's attitude to non-revolutionary time and Kamsky's attitude to that. What What did you make of Marx's quote when he was like? the kind of thing that he says that Kautsky takes from him and that's why he's a social democrat, right? Where, where Marx at uh, one of the congresses, I think of the First International, says something along the lines of, we don't deny that there might be countries like England and the United States where you could get socialism peacefully. I read that and I looked at the date that he said that. It was 1872 and I was just like, that's a miss from Marx. What a fucking huge miss. To be saying that when like the moment reconstruction ended is like yeah. is so insane. It's uh-huh. just like, uh-huh. yes, of course, the workers can totally be freed by peaceful means. Don't look at what's going on south of the Mason Dixon line. That doesn't matter at all. Well, I mean, one of the things that Matic says is Marx isn't consistent at all periods of time. And Matic says it's almost impossible to be totally theoretically consistent at all points he seems to suggest that that isn't really how marx and engels feel um yeah i can't specifically remember what he says about that but the the general attitude that i get is that he thinks that marx and engels don't necessarily feel like that and i can imagine speculate you could you could speculate about that not thinking that the entirety of your political legacy is going to for the most part, be <laughs> minded toward implementing that that line of thinking, you know, kind of thing. Like, um, it, it doesn't. It doesn't necessarily have to be wrong. That that statement doesn't necessarily have to be right or wrong um, to be just a piece of conjecture. I don't know, but yeah, yeah, I suppose. Still, though, could have picked a better year to have yeah, said that but, than yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe the news hadn't quite reached him yet. I don't know. <laughs> Although he was writing about going well. politics, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I, I really dug this bit where he kind of gets into something that we've talked about, about Kautskyism before, and something that we've actually found kind of exciting. But he criticizes here where he talks about this idea of like, we look at capitalist society and we see all of the things that um, workers are excluded from, right? Whether it's science or it's like good schools, or it's literature, or it's art. And he basically accuses Kautsky's whole program of being uh, a bit too fetishistic about capitalism, about basically saying, well, what it is that we want is a workers' capitalist society. You know, what we want is science for the workers, and we want schools for the workers, and literature for the workers, and art for the workers, without kind of seeing like what he says, they should have just demanded the end of capitalist science, uh, you know, instead of doing that, they ask for worker scientists. Instead of demanding like the end of bourgeois law, they demand like labor lawyers, right? So it's this interesting like dynamic of, you know, kind of trying to build space for the workers and about maybe like working class prejudices that we kind of need to be trying to overcome about like, you know, valuing thing and cap- valuing things in capitalist society that we shouldn't be. I think when we've talked about this, we've talked more about like trying to create like, you know, like hiking groups and I don't know, fucking like music venues for like, you know, the workers or something like that. And not so much like working class lawyers. I don't think that's really our Mm. bag, but it's an interesting thing, right? It's like, he's accusing the social Democrats of seeing in capitalist society, all of these things that the workers are excluded from and kind of being jealous. And, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons that he basically calls Kautsky, like the representative of the petty bourgeoisie, right? (laughs) 
Yeah, I guess I feel like yeah, I feel like there's different ways you can approach this, perhaps because obviously the way we've looked at it in the past is that um, it's important to build independent. The idea about building independent working class institutions, right, and they should exist in all levels of society for as a as a part of the process of teaching the working class to take charge of their own lives, but also take charge of the running of society. I guess, um, and. To the extent that what they're facilitating is the creation of totally independent proletarian forms of, I don't know, music and theatre and literature and even then philosophical discussions or legal discussions or what have you. Um, I guess you can tie that form of activity to something, to being some sort of being progressive, important, dare I say, revolutionary political work. Um, Maybe Matic is just denying that it's possible to do that kind of work in non-revolutionary times. What he is doing is, um, yeah, sort of denying that kind of uh, building, the possibility of building an independent working class movement in a non-revolutionary period of time. There is, I guess, a question of, because there is also an element of this where you can reflect on what the working class did in their efforts to kind of like almost educate themselves and ennoble themselves, you know, the idea that they would form uh, reading groups and be reading like literature in the like few hours that they get free time in their 12 hour work days or whatever. Um, and wonder whether what was happening there was um, exposing the working class to bourgeois ideology, bourgeois culture. Um, but I don't know how you create a hard definition or distinction between the two and who's going to go around and litigate. I mean, it it doesn't seem like a particularly Me. positive path to go down. Yeah, you're going to be the commissar <laughs> for like for the arts or whatever. And say that I'm just waiting somebody, for us somebody's, to get... Somebody's playing a bourgeois like chord progression on the guitar or something and actually... <laughs> I, listen, I'm just waiting for a communist Marvel movie. That's all I'm waiting for. <laughs> Well, yeah, somebody somebody exhumed the body of Sergei Eisenstein and we'll get to work. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I don't even know. Was his name Sergei? Who knows? He yeah. was the director, right? I got it right. <laughs> um I mean, there's so, there's a lot in this essay, and I would recommend everybody read it because it is. I think I, a conversation I would like to have is just that I think everybody needs to chill out with calling themselves like a specific set of ideology, like labeling themselves one specific thing, because it's 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 actively harmful, sure, whatever. But it's also just so fucking stupid. It's like the meme of like you know, like uh, you're not a Marxist Leninist Maoist. You live in New Haven, Connecticut. You know what I mean? It's like, nobody's a Leninist. Nobody's a fucking councilist. You know what I mean? I'm not going around spreading councils. You know what I mean? It's like people are barely even anarchists. I don't know. I just think everybody needs to chill out with calling themselves one specific thing. Um, especially sock dems, I would say, because it's just like, I don't know, this stuff was written like a hundred years ago. Obviously we're going to be needing to like update what we think. And also like, are you a Leninist? You know what I mean? Like, are you, do you currently exist in 1917, like Petrograd? Like, come on. Like, I don't know. It's just very silly to me, but the same thing goes with councilists and it's like, Oh, I'm a left communist. It's like, Oh, good for you. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 um, I appreciate that sentiment. Yeah. Quite fully. Yeah. I, I went to a protest yesterday and had some interaction with, uh, some anarchists. And I mean, they are not, inter not even interaction really i was around and, uh, and they were around 
and uh, and I, I mean, I appreciate our political comrades, but at the same time, there was I, I did feel there was a degree of like attaching oneself to a name or to uh, a particular collection of political attitudes, irrespective of the circumstances in which we find ourselves at the same time i really do appreciate from anarchist this is a total aside i really do appreciate from anarchists um a total skepticism uh it's totally combative attitude toward the police i always appreciate that absolutely so (laughs) absolutely i'm pleased that somebody comes and bears that standard and carries that um (laughs) I mean, I get it, right? Like, I get it because, like, we're all alienated and we all want to have, like, an identity that we can, like, be a part of. But it's like, you are not a Maoist. You are not a Leninist. You are not a left com. You, you know, I don't know. It's like everybody just take a step back. <laughs> I guess um, one brief thing we could do, perhaps, is to sort of, like, reflect on where we are now in whatever year it is, 2023, and what elements of this have some bearing on that? Because as you were saying about um, workers winning concessions, I was thinking about, well, okay, if now in this moment of um, massive inflation and at the end of many decades worth of um, reduction in the relative earnings of the working class, if we were to now win some um, price increases, that would perhaps presumably that would come as a result of a reduction in the sort of like gross wealth accumulation that's happened in smaller and smaller hands um over the past the sort of the period of what we could call neoliberalism or the sort of descendant period of neoliberalism over the past 10 years um but from this kind of analysis what would but basically what would if there were if we were win to win something there we wouldn't be winning something in a high point of capitalism right we would be winning something in a crisis point of capitalism and what would capitalism try and what would capitalists try and do in that situation are they going to try and um if they can't pay us poverty wages anymore they're going to try and um switch over to more and more mechanization of production um is it possible to do that and are there new are there new um, avenues for an increase in the rate of profit or are we at some terminal point of crisis? I just sort of open these things up. I mean, we, we, every time we, basically every time we get close, every time anybody in any discussion gets close to discussing the final breakdown of capitalism, the question is, are we at the final breakdown of capitalism? Or is there some new, the answer is always no. And we don't know. Yeah, we don't, <laughs> we don't know, but um, it's nice to tie this political discussion from almost a hundred years ago into present sort of like considerations of the moment we're in now and, I guess the other thing to say in relation to how to relate to the working class is like, how do when do we know we're in a revolutionary moment or not? I don't I don't really know. Maybe maybe it's evident. Um, maybe you just got to do your best. Yeah. All the maybe time. maybe just, just your assume best. you're always in a revolutionary moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And just be the crazy guy in the corner proselytizing. The yeah. <laughs> I wonder if there is like a capitalist somewhere in like a small room trying to trying to figure out 
what the biggest small war they could possibly have to like devalue all of the fixed capital and like reset the, <laughs> the yeah. rising organic <laughs> composition of capital is without like just destroying the planet. I mean, they yeah. did today, this goddamn country did just send a bunch of like long range missiles to Ukraine. So maybe somebody's figuring it out. Yeah. Yeah, maybe they, maybe. Although I doubt there are doubt. I doubt there were any sort of big brains in the British establishment. That decided. <laughs> it is, you know, what it is crazy when you take a step back. Just thinking about British politics, like it is insane that like all of the fringe crazies of the fucking fringe crazy party of the Tories are just they're just in charge now. <laughs> It's just yeah. <laughs> so crazy when you just take a step back and go, wow, that's nuts. They actually, mm. it's all of them, all of the people that like under David Cameron, nobody listened to. It's like, now they're just all in charge. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good for them. You can do anything, kids, if you set your mind to it. <laughs> um, th- and you go to Eton. And you go to Eton. Yeah, exactly. You don't get Eton. Sorry. Yeah, you're going to be a chimney sweep for the rest of your life. There are two quotes, Dan, that I think I hate to hit everybody over the head with quotes, but there are two quotes that we have to get to if we before we finish this. One of them is just he's just the man. He says, Kautsky, after all of this, he basically just says Kautsky finally returned from where he had sprung, which I think is very good phrasing from the petty bourgeoisie who hate with equal force, both monopoly control and socialism and hope for a purely quantitative change of society and enlarged production of the status quo, a bigger and better capitalism, a better and more comprehensive democracy as a capitalism climaxing in fascism or changing finally into communism. That's pretty fucking brutal. Him just being like, yeah, Kautsky is basically just the petty bourgeoisie. I totally see what he's saying because it is like, they just want better capitalism. And if we have the best capitalism, then we'll finally have communism. And it's like, oh, that's why they didn't just take him out back and shoot him. Right, you know, what are you going to yeah. do? Yeah. Um, the other one, what, can you guess what the other one I want to read, Dan, is? It's. Uh, no, why don't you, let, why don't you enlighten me? <laughs> it's the. Um, it's the fight. It's Lenin basically being like, okay, fine. Rosa Luxemburg was right. God oh, damn yeah. it. <laughs> So basically, yeah, so this is Lenin just saying Rosa Luxemburg was right. What are you going to do? He says in a letter to one of his friends, he says, she saw long ago that Kautsky, this is this is brutal. I didn't realize how angry he got at Kautsky. He says that Kautsky, that servile theoretician, was cringing to the majority of the party and to opportunism. There's nothing in the world at present more harmful and dangerous for the ideological independence of the proletariat than this filthy, smug, and disgusting hypocrisy of Kautsky. He wants to hush everything up and smear everything over by sophistry and pseudo-learned rhetoric to lull the awakened consciousness of the workers. I wrote yeesh in the... In the uh, <laughs> little uh right after that um pretty brutal i mean we didn't talk yeah. at all about how kautsky was like adamantly opposed to bolshevism and like actual communism but you know you see it there in the break with lenin and, yeah, you know yeah. just assume <laughs> yeah matic almost scolds lenin a little bit without without mentioning his name he said because you know um uh L- lenin dubbed kautsky as a renegade right and he wrote this piece on the renegade kautsky and uh and matic said something about it's it, to call um, Kautsky a renegade is to totally misunderstand the trajectory of Kautskyism because, as I was saying before, he, he's not broken from his former politics. Matic is saying that, like, renegade, like he was always, he's not reneged on anything because his politics has actually been consistent the whole time and Lenin just didn't understand him. And apparently, Rosen Luxemburg did. Rosen Luxemburg did. Wow. There you go. go. The the martyred saint, Rosa Luxemburg. What are you going to do? 
Um, yeah, that was good. That was pretty, pretty brutal. Um, I think we needed a, a dip back into the left stuff, Dan, after all of the dialectical uh, nonsense. But um, I really enjoyed that. <laughs> you know, council comms, they, uh, they're fun to read every now and then. And I will be yeah. honest, they, I feel like they, more than anyone else, focus on the economics of everything and not just the political question. I mean, obviously, like the Annapel people definitely do. But like, you know, my man's over here, Maddox over here, just like citing Grossman and talking all about how that influences everything. Whereas maybe you get the feeling that social Democrats kind of to a certain extent rely on political strategy a little bit too much and not so much on what's going to happen once they actually take power. I can't think of where that where something like that happened, but I'm sure that's <laughs> happened in history. What are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Great. <laughs> Well, now now that we're all thoroughly energized and not depressed about the future of things, um, I really enjoyed that, Dan. We went long on this one, but that was very fun. Good three yeah, essays. And were you able to find a copy of the Council Communist Reader? Because I tried to find it everywhere, and it was like no. I just I just looked at the PDF. I mean, it's recently. It's only published a few years ago, I think, right? Mm, I think so. Yeah, I mean, they're it, all put I mean, together. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I definitely recommend. I'm going to go through the rest of the essays in that book, or maybe you and I will at some point. Um, we can like. <laughs> familiarize ourselves with all of the key the key heads of, of left communism yeah. the Mount Rushmore yeah alright well Dan I really enjoyed that I haven't had dinner once again because I keep not eating dinner before we do these things so I'm going to go with that and yeah. Um, yeah see everybody next time I guess yeah, we'll see you soon bye bye everyone music you heard this episode was music to kill bad people too by king gizzard and the lizard wizard if you like this song you can check it out and much much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com be sure and follow us up on instagram twitter and facebook and if you like what you heard be sure and tune in next week for some more commie discussion till next time Whoa.